0: Let's remain standing as we turn to two passages of Scripture. The first is in the book of Acts, chapter 2, and the second will be Psalm 16, our main text. Acts, chapter 2, beginning at verse 22, let us give our reverent attention, for this is God's holy, infallible, and inspired word. Men of Israel, hear these words. whom you crucified. Psalm 16. A of David, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. Because he has at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The grass withers and flower fades, but God's word abides forever. You may be seated. Let us pray. Lord, we ask now that you might give to us that humility and reverence without which no one can understand and obey your word. We pray truly that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, our rock and redeemer. In Christ's name we pray, amen. There's a film called The King's Speech, which is about King George VI, who ruled over the British Empire starting in 1936. King George had difficulty with his speech and was helped by a speech therapist to overcome his stammer. In watching this movie, one of the things that stood out to me was how the speech of the king was like glue that holds the kingdom together. The word of the king, like glue, holding the kingdom together. And that made me think of the Psalms. For in the Psalms, we have David speaking. And his speech is not the speech of a random guy playing a guitar in the Judean wilderness. It's the speech of the one whom God has anointed, whom God has appointed to rule as shepherd over the covenant people. And so we have here, in these psalms, words of wisdom Some psalms directed to the covenant people, such as Psalm 34, My sons, give attention to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. But most of the words in the psalms are prayers. They're addressed to God, as this psalm is. Preserve me, O God. And in this psalm we see, don't we, a great contrast with the fool of Psalm 14. For what does the fool say in his heart? There is no God. Do you want to follow the fool? Do you want to be a disciple of the wicked one? Or do you want to follow the king of wisdom? The king who leads us into the truth. And that's what we're about here as we consider Psalm 16, which... I think is a good candidate for the king's confession a crystallized summary of David's own faith and his trust and what it means to delight in the Lord. We'll take this psalm under three headings today. Firstly, a singular faith verses 1 through 4. Secondly, an all-sufficient God verses 5 through 8. And finally, the splendor that awaits, verses 9 through 11. Firstly, a singular faith. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Where does David go for the shoring up and strengthening of his faith? He goes to no other than to the author of his faith, to the one who gave him this faith. If God is the author of our faith, why would we go anywhere else to have this faith deepened and further anchored and rooted? Preserve me, O God. One has memorably rendered this Keep me kept. Keep me kept. O you who are the keeper of your people, I desire that you might guard my trust, guard my faith. For as Psalm 28 tells us, If you do not hear me, I will be like those who go down to the pit. I am not my own keeper. I am not my own guardian. God reveals himself to Abraham. I am your shield. Your reward will be great. And all those who share the faith of Abraham, like David, like us, can come to the Lord and echo this prayer. Preserve me, O God, for in you... I take refuge. If I lose anything, Lord, let me not lose this. Let me not lose my faith in you. You know, David occupies a very high position when it comes to his own authority and prominence on earth. And yet, those things don't enter into the equation when he approaches God. How does he come? He comes in a low position. He comes in a spirit of poverty, humbly. Here is a king who is not ashamed to confess before the Lord, I am poor and needy. And so, with us, what do we bring to God? Nothing. And it's in that poverty of spirit, even that sense of bankruptcy, I am without any resources, any recourse in myself. But when I come to God knowing that he is my help, he is my refuge, that he will answer and he will hear. Verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. In other words, it is by your goodness that I am able to stand. We can hear similarly in Romans chapter 5. Through Christ we have obtained access into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. My good, O God, is only found in you. My surroundings might be like a barren desert or wasteland, but you, Lord, are the ever-flowing spring, the oasis that never fails to give me life and goodness. You know, God's character is unchanging. He tells his people, I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you are not consumed. And there's an implication, there's a ramification for us in this. If God is good, that means he is always good. That his goodness will never exhaust itself. It will never run dry. When we meet God and pray in this way, he will never fail to show his goodness to those who seek his face. If God's goodness occupies the space of our lives and our hearts, I ask you, what room is there then for grumbling and complaining? The spirit of mumbling and grousing, it should be crowded out, When we understand the all penetrating, all permeating goodness of God to us. Psalm 116 Return, O my soul, to your rest. For how has the Lord dealt with you? He's dealt bountifully, He's dealt with you in His goodness. We'll come back to verse 3 toward the end, but now let's proceed to verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. This is an extension of the logic and reasoning of verses 1 and 2. If David goes to God for strength and preservation then he also refuses to go anywhere else for these things the yes lord is always going to require a no to other false voices that offer security and pleasure hero israel The Lord our God, the Lord is one. But idols, they're always in the plural. Notice, the sorrows also are plural in verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another god will multiply. It's not one grief and one sorrow, that is found in the company of those who worship other gods. It's many. It's a snowball effect that compounds and that cascades. I did a bit of hiking in the summertime, and because it was only a day hike, I had carried a water bottle with me, but nothing else. And I met these folks who were carrying 50-pound backpacks, and they looked at me and said, wow, it would be nice to only carry water. Those who serve idols, those who worship false gods, the picture is in this psalm, climbing up a steep and rocky path, and with each step of the way, more burdens, more heaviness added to the load. That's life outside of the kingdom of God. That's life outside of Christ. Not a box of chocolates, but swallowing one bitter pill after another with no end in sight. One thing I've noticed recently is just how anxious we are as a society and how even the very tools that we are using to combat our anxiety only make us more anxious. It puts us further on edge, living with more strain and tension. There is only one place to find perfect peace and rest, and that is in the Lord of the Sabbath. Because as Isaiah tells us, there is no peace for the wicked but God keeps those in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon him. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply their drink offerings of blood. I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Now, I don't think David is saying he's not uttering the names of false gods. Scripture, for example, tells us of names of idols such as Baal or Asherah. Instead, David is saying he's not going to invoke these gods. That is, he's not going to call upon them for help and for deliverance. David disclaims the worship of all idols and all communion with their worshipers. And you know, this is to be a pattern for the church. In the early church, the Romans would say to the Christians, well, just take a little bit of salt and sprinkle it on our sacrifices. It doesn't have to be much, just a few grains. And the world continues to say so in different forms. Yes, you can confess and honor the teaching of Scripture, with the qualification that it doesn't impinge upon or infringe on my own sense of autonomy and independence. The church must continue to say, with David, that we will not take the names of the false gods, broken cisterns that cannot hold water, in our lives, into our hearts. That's David's singular faith. Secondly, the all-sufficient God. Verse 5, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. You ever been to a table or sat down at a meal where there just wasn't enough food? David comes to a table and a feast in which there is ample Supply. Plenty. Overflowing. You know when the Bible uses the term sufficient in connection with God and his goodness and grace. It's not sufficient like we sometimes think of it. Just enough. Barely enough. But the idea is superabundant, More than enough. Overflowing. Think of Jesus as he causes the crowds to sit down, those who are hungry, those who are famished. As they ate, they ate, the Bible says, until they were full, and there's leftovers as the disciples pick up 12 baskets of bread. Where God the shepherd is doing the feeding, there is going to be no scarcity, no lack. The contrast here is with verse 4, where he said, Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out. David, like all believers, share in an altar where idolaters have no right to eat. If you read the books of Exodus and Leviticus, you'll find this term portion often in connection with the offerings and sacrifices. There would be a memorial portion of the offering devoted to the Lord. And in turn, God would say to the Levitical priests who offered it, Here is your portion. Here is your part. The altar the place of meeting between a holy God and a sinful people, not only revealing the means of reconciliation through the blood of a substitute, not only revealing the place of cleansing and purification, but also conveying for us God being our fullness, God being our provision. The Lord is my portion and cup. You see, the Lord is not only the host of the banquet. He himself is the feast. John chapter 6. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, Jesus says, you have no life in you. That is to say, unless you partake by faith in the sacrificial body and shed blood of Christ, you do not have true life. You do not have the abundant life that Christ has promised to share and to give to us. But as you feed upon the Lord as one who is hungering and thirsting for righteousness, What is the blessing? You will be filled. You will be satisfied. Again, think of the contrast to those in this present evil age, where the Psalms say their portion is only in this life. Philippians chapter 3, their minds are set on earthly things, their God is their belly. It's like drinking salt water. You keep drinking and drinking, but your thirst never slaked. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. What does this make all the other gifts of this life? Family, work, friendships, food, rest. Well, they're icing on the cake. Young people, you ever heard the phrase icing on the cake? If I invited you downstairs, there's some cake. You'll say, yes, let's go eat. And if I said, there's icing on it too, you'll say, excellent, sounds even better. You don't need the icing, but it's there and it makes it even better. Well, the temporal gifts of this life are kind of like that. Extras, add-ons, in the scheme of things. What do you really need? What do you really require? According to this psalm, God alone. The Lord himself is our sufficiency. His salvation is the good, truly the only good, we really need. Need. Do you realize that? The Lord is then pleased to load us down with so many other benefits that we can't even close the trunk of the car because it is stuffed to the gills. As our Lord teaches, pressed down, shaken together, running over the gifts of God. Put into our laps. Last part of verse 5. You hold my lot. Here we're brought into the image of the land, particularly the land inheritance. You remember as the tribes came in to the promised land, how was it divided? Joshua cast lots, and as the lot fell to each tribe, that was their inheritance. The book of Numbers, the land shall be divided by lots according to the names of the tribes of their fathers, they shall inherit. Now it's interesting, I don't know if you've taken time recently to look at a map of the tribal allotments. You might have one in the back of your Bible. You'll notice that some tribes receive larger territories and some smaller. For example, Manasseh has a very large plot, some on the west side of the Jordan, some on the east side. The tribes of Zebulun and Issachar, which neighbor Manasseh, are comparatively smaller. Or Judah, which has a fairly sizable portion in the south, whereas Simeon and Benjamin are not as spacious. But no matter what tribe you're in, what could you do? You could follow David in praying with thanksgiving. Verse 6, The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So whether you sat on 40 acres or 5,000 acres, you could be content and say, where the lines have been drawn, God has drawn those lines. And for that reason, I can be thankful and I can be grateful. And you know, I think there's various applications we can talk about here. Because this is not ultimately about property boundaries, is it? It's about God's providence in our lives. God's providential care for us. It can apply to our churches. i visited churches with a couple thousand members. i visited churches with five members. But the Lord, the same Lord, is in each place where two or three are gathered. There I am in the midst of them. Each church can say, with David, the lions have fallen to me in pleasant places. Or about spiritual gifts. One might have a certain gift and look with green eyes of envy to the neighbor and say, well, why don't I have that particular ability and that particular gift Paul reminds us, whatever gift you have, it's not for your own benefit. It's for the benefit of the whole body of Christ. And so with spiritual gifts, too, we can say, The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I have a beautiful inheritance. The assurance of this comes in verse 7 when he says... I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me as he meditates, as he allows the word to marinate in his life concerning the many gifts of the Lord. And then verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. What is the secret To the Christian life. I always kind of find it funny if you use the term secret in a title of a book, more people are apt to buy it. We want to be clued in to something that no one else necessarily knows. Well, it turns out the secret to the Christian life is not really a secret at all. It's revealed over and over in the pages of Scripture. The key to walking before the Lord in a way that's pleasing to him is, according to verse 8, to set the Lord always before you. That's how to run the race with endurance. To keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The just shall live how? The righteous shall live how? By faith. By faith which sets the Lord and his righteousness always before you. The faith which sets the Lord and his promises, his wisdom always before you. Peter, able to get out of the boat, even walk on water as he keeps his eyes on Jesus. But when he does not, he begins to sink. He saw the wind and the waves. In other words, he takes his eyes off Christ and looks to his circumstances, looks to his environment. What what is your pastor and whatever your elders going to tell you when they give you Counsel. They will give the counsel of Psalm 16 to set the Lord before you, whatever your problems, whatever your consternation and confusion might be. Here is the light that will pierce through the fog and through the difficulty. The singular faith, the all-sufficient God, and finally the splendor that awaits. Verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. These words should sound familiar to us because we read from Peter's sermon at Pentecost, the day in which the Spirit of God is outpoured as tongues of fire come upon the apostles, they are able to declare the mighty works of God to those from all the world. And as though men of Israel are gathered, Peter is able to open up the explanation, why is it that these things have taken place? And Peter points to whom? He points to Jesus and the power of the resurrection and he says according to Acts 2:24 God raised him Jesus up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it He says David is actually ultimately not writing about himself why Because we know he died, and in fact, we even know where he is buried. They had perhaps a tombstone there in Jerusalem to where David's body was kept. David was speaking how? He was speaking as a prophet, foretelling about another, the anointed one to come. The one that God had promised would be set on his throne forever. Jesus descended from David according to the flesh and raised by the spirit of holiness. The Lord Jesus is David's hope and he is our hope as well. The will of Psalm 16 is now changed into has. God has not abandoned his servant, his Holy One, to Sheol or to corruption. The empty tomb of Jesus now sheds a glorious light on the scriptures of the Old Covenant, including this psalm. A light for us to see the glory of Christ, who now has the power of an indestructible life. Do you see Jesus in the present tense? Jesus, who is at God's right hand, who himself is the storehouse of pleasures forevermore. In Christ... God makes known to us the paths of life. In Christ, we understand that there are delights and solid joys and lasting pleasures. Based on that, let's back up to verse 3 in conclusion. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, In whom is all my delight. In contrast to a gathering of the idolaters who are congregating around their own imaginations and their own ambitions, David is grateful to be a part of a communion who seeks the face of the God of Jacob. What is David doing here in verse 3? As he delights in the saints, as he delights in his brothers and sisters, he is giving us a window into the heart of King Jesus himself. For according to the word of God, he is not ashamed to call us brothers. That he sings over us with his love as he sits at Passover with his disciples, I have earnestly desired to sup with you, to eat this Passover with you, before I suffer. You, the saints of the Lord, are the very apple of the eye of our King, of our Savior. You are the mighty ones, the excellent ones, according to verse 3 who are treasured and whom god smiles over in benediction love the psalms tell us the lord takes pleasure in his people he adorns the humble with salvation so we should be gone and rid of all defeatism and deflation, poor little old me, a nobody, when we are so favored, so loved and treasured by our Lord. If you'd like to learn contentment, learn this psalm. A psalm which we don't know if David wrote in A Valley of Affliction, or in the mountain of exaltation on his throne. But we learn to be satisfied as we look to the Lord alone with a singular faith, to know him as the all-sufficient God, and to find in Christ the splendor that awaits all those whose hope is Christ. Let us pray together. Lord, we do thank you that our lives are hidden with Christ in you, and that when Christ appears, we will appear with him. And so, Lord, we do pray that you might continue to have your word bear fruit in our lives, to guide us and direct us that we might not turn to the right hand or to the left, as we know you, the God of our sufficiency, and life. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.